Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The relationship between Islam and the environment has a long and rich history across various Muslim societies. Anna Gade outlines several strains where these domains intersect in her new book, Muslim Environmentalisms, Religious and Social Foundations, published with Columbia University Press in 2019. Gade takes the reader through a number of literary and scriptural sources that Muslims have deployed over history but also steeps her analysis in decades of on-the-ground ethnographic fieldwork, especially in Southeast Asia. Specific examples reveal the interplay between local, regional, and global contexts as interpretive positions shift and realign across each theme. This combination creates a productive template for rethinking Muslim environmentalism within the larger framework of the environmental humanities. In our conversation, we discuss Quranic theological resources and themes, environmentalism and development work, legal and ethical contexts, ideals of environmental justice, Muslim humanistic traditions, eco-Sufism, devotional rituals and popular piety, ethnographic video materials for course use, and green Islam in Indonesia. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to the New Books in Islamic Studies on the New Books Network. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Anna Gade about Muslim environmentalisms, religious and social foundations. Welcome, Anna. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Great. It's great to be here. Thanks, Christian. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this, uh, this wonderful book. Um, it's really excellent. And, uh, the thing that I really, really liked about it the most was how you're really bringing, uh, Islamic studies, kind of a history of religions, tradition, um, and then environmental studies into this, uh, creative and productive dialogue. So I'm excited to hear about, uh, how, how that all happened. Oh, thanks. It's a frontier for sure. Um, before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit about um, how you came to the study of Islam, um, and in your case, probably environmental studies. Um, so can you can you tell us a little bit about um, your background and training and influences, um, and then how you kind of came to this uh, rich interdisciplinary perspective? Yeah, thanks. Well, as, as you know, my background's in religious studies, actually in the history of religions, and then I was in Islamic studies, both in terms of my teaching and my research for many years, writing on Quran. And I did field work in Southeast Asia since the very beginning on my dissertation. So all of those multidisciplinary perspectives from the academic study of religion, uh, Islamic studies, Southeast Asian studies, and then having a field work based approach have all been there from the start. And how I got into environmental studies really is the story of this book. This project is what led me into that field, which is actually now where my appointment is full-time institutionally in the Nelson Institute uh, for Environmental Studies at Madison. So what happened was I had finished my uh, dissertation uh, in preparation for publication, and it was right around uh, 2001. And I had a widening of my perspective, mostly through needing to do a public outreach and to think about how to articulate Islam for wider audiences uh, in North America in the aftermath of the catastrophe of September 11th. So instead of embarking on what kind of would have been an obvious next project coming out of my first book, which would have been to look at Sufi revival in uh, in the Malay-speaking world in Indonesia. Instead, I decided that I wanted to really think regionally about Islam in Southeast Asia. So I learned Khmer, the, uh, the primary language of Cambodia, and went to do fieldwork with Jam Muslims 
uh, in Cambodia, mostly up uh, along the Mekong River in the country, although a lot of John Muslims live, of course, in in the main city of Phnom Penh. And the story is basically one of those fieldwork uh, awakening surprise stories where I was working with uh, networks of schooling and education like I had previously and didn't fully realize how much I was viewed in the field as being a potential agent for the development industry, like in a good way, like scouting out where grants would go, for example, for aid and outreach to Muslims. Um, And uh, what I also didn't anticipate was that the answers to my questions would be so grounded in the vital matter and the environmental realities of Cambodia at that time. So when I would talk about uh, schooling and changes in schooling and education, for example, often the conversation would shift to a discussion of uh, fish. So people would uh, talk about the challenges in getting kids to go to school and fish harvest time. And then more importantly, the challenge in 2004, 2005, which is the fish on which the livelihood of Cham Muslims has depended for hundreds of years in the region, in Vietnam and in Cambodia, had disappeared. And no one knew at that time that that was likely a result of dam projects that had been completed upstream by other countries, in other countries. But what I found, Christian, was that I couldn't work that into the story. Uh, you know, For all of these tools that I had to analyze global Islam, especially with an anthropological approach, I was frustrated that I couldn't talk about development in a way that really matched the fieldwork realities that I was documenting, nor could I talk about the fish. So uh, it took a long time. Uh, I started by thinking about development, and I was never satisfied uh, with the article that came out of this. In fact, I pulled it from the Journal of the American Academy of Religion because I was like, you know, this isn't right. The time wasn't right yet. And then uh, it was really through uh, a new fieldwork project in Indonesia, looking at Islam and environment started in 2010. And it's culminated in this book that I began this journey into rethinking Islam and the environment. Now, um, this phrasing Islam and the environment is something that you kind of take issue with in the book. And of course, the title is Muslim Environmentalisms. So can you help us understand the difference? Uh, what, what does this phrasing mean to you and, and how does it operate in your book? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that. That was sort of my first, um, I don't know, insight about how I wanted to frame or reframe this project. You know, initially, like so many of our academic projects, I didn't know how hard this would be. I thought, <laughs> right? I mean, we would, <laughs> it's like parenting, you know, you, you wouldn't do it otherwise. Uh, so I thought that um, the work by Richard Foltz and Fred Denny and Mawel Izzedine and others from about a decade before I was thinking about this book was terrific. And I also recognized that things were changing in the field of Islamic studies and religious studies, in particular um, critiques of world religions kinds of discourses have you know, really become mainstream. So I thought, oh, you know, it's, it's time to sort of update this, right? And, and I had fieldwork material from Indonesia that was Interesting. You know, a lot of people thought that it, that there wouldn't even be Muslim responses to environmental change in these registers. And um, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to people who uh, who proved otherwise. And so I thought, oh, I'll just I'll just write this up. I'll write this up like, a, you know, like an intro to Islam course. You know, we'll just go through starting with the development material, of course, but, you know, go through sort of standard topics like Quran, Sufism law, practice, and activism, and just, you know, let, let the data, you know, kind of the chips fall in, in that structure. And what I found was that it didn't, uh, that also didn't work. And the problem was not fitting the Muslim religious material, you know, whatever I was going to talk about, into the framework of uh, environmental studies, but rather that the structures from environmental studies I found were not robust enough to hold the Islamic material. So it ended up being this kind of reverse critique that really had very little to do with Islamic studies. That was not the problem. But more problems such as the 
the intuitive and formal definitions for what is environment uh, were were crumbling uh, as I as I tried to reach for them. For example, um, in environmental science, a standard way to talk about environment, you know, that which my st- definition that my students memorize will be that the environment is the interaction of biotic and abiotic factors. And that's really different from the way that people in environmental studies actually operate vis-a-vis environmental material. For example, how problems are framed in terms of approach and prioritization. And it also differs a lot from the way that the emerging environmental humanities will talk about environment too, which is in terms of um, notions like the Anthropocene, for example, and more sort of metaphorical understanding. So you know, I, I, had, I had this issue on my hands. So part of looking at Muslim environmentalisms is recognizing that the concept of environment, for my purposes, was best looked at as the the focus of whatever a commitment, an environmental commitment was taking as its object. And uh, this is echoed by a turn that had been taken in anthropology of the environment some time back. So rather than an Islam and approach, rather than a, you know anthropology of approach, the idea is this kind of phenomenology that will really arise from the experiences and the worldviews and the attitudes of the people who I was actually studying. And the benefit of that is it gets away from a sort of a world religions kind of template that will expect there to be resources within tradition from a scripture and from practice that are then excavated by Muslims and non-Muslims in the service of a project that often has, you know, like so much of what we see in religious studies, has resonances more with a 19th century kind of Protestant past and expectations, say about virtuous moral sentiments like care and concern being fostered for nature, rather than the Quranic terms uh, that are really expressed by the folks that I was meeting in the field. Yeah, and that's another thing that uh, works really well in the book is you you bring in kind of these uh, textual and what we might think of as kind of uh, institutional resources or, or tradition in a kind of very uh, broad sense. But then you also kind of place it in this very kind of intricate field work that you do. Um, so I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that um, in terms of kind of the long term uh, presence you've had in Southeast Asia. Um, but then also maybe some of the specific places and times you were there. And then I'm really interested in in this kind of interplay that you keep mapping out between the local, the regional, and and maybe the global, uh, both from an Islamic frame, but also from an environmentalism frame. So I know that's a lot, but maybe you can take it where you want. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, the... Uh, the consistency with the work I'd done previously, like that first book on Quran and Quranic education, is to uh, get around sort of questions about the Muslim world, get around uh, uh, other kinds of non-starter questions about essentialization by you know looking at any Muslim particulars at all, and instead to talk about circulations uh, and. To, as, as you yourself know, as an Asianist, I'm sure, to present an argument that is about tradition, globally shared tradition, using Eastern Asian material as its, uh, as its primary grounding is still surprising to some, even in the field of Islamic studies, and, and, and has been surprising even to uh, people I speak with in Indonesia, too. So I think that had I not been working in Southeast Asia, had I, for example, been working in Western Asia, in so-called Middle East, uh, I wouldn't have taken such care to present in the introduction to this work what it means to be working in Southeast Asia and have that not represent global Islam or really represent anywhere that it's not, but instead be a lens to talk about circulations. The kind of circulations that I'm interested in are uh, precisely the kinds of methodological challenges that environmental studies now faces, especially under uh, post-colonial critique, which is that so often generalizations about the earth and the planetary have not been attentive to the differential impacts and real power structures through 
colonial experience and other uh, and, and other inequities that really shape our environmental worlds, particularly in terms of questions of environmental justice and shared environmental futures. So by talking about these circulations and really digging into the local, not only can I sort of keep it real in terms of uh, real stories, not only do I get my best data, you know, the surprises about what people are really talking about, let's say with apocalypticism, but then it also allows me to maintain these different levels that uh, provides for a global and universal perspective and exactly the Quranic registers that religious people talk in, but then that also allow for difference at the same time. And, and the trick is being able to recognize then using the the historian of religions tools, what are the structures that I would identify as local, national, global, universal, and then Muslim specific. Um, in terms of uh, places that I worked, um, yeah, yeah, I was a lot on Java. This time, my previous work was in Sulawesi. I did go out to Ambon some. I was teaching in Jogjakarta at um, uh, uh, Gajamada University. And so the first example in the book that really is meant to illustrate these methodological kinds of claims has to do with a volcano that erupted in 2010 catastrophically. And I talk about the ways that um, the eruption itself was discussed in a kind of a Quranic register that I think could have been missed in the past by anthropological work like that of Clifford Gertz who worked very close by, actually, in his work on religion in Java. Um, now, you mentioned that you you kind of, uh, one of the early impetuses for the project was uh, ideas about development. Um, and you you look at this um, in this kind of dichotomy that you, you've laid out for us between kind of the Islam and the environment versus a Muslim environmentalism. Um, so can you can you tell us how does uh, right these two interpretive positions how do they play out in terms of development uh, in action um, in terms of on the ground um, and institutions that are operating uh, in, in Southeast Asia um, what, how do they conceive of and then try to deploy uh, environmentalism Yeah, thanks. I mean one one of the things that I was really aware of in beginning to conceptualize this in terms of development programs and plans going back to Cambodia. Uh, and then throughout the final write-up of the book is um, to, to think about the question of authenticity in representing Muslim environmentalisms. This is something that uh, Dr. Keisha Ali has written about before too. But my concern has been not to present top-down programs or initiatives that originate with uh, agencies and institutions and sometimes states that are secular or non-Muslim and say that somehow these are not, not real Islam, right? And there needs to be an authentic Muslim response from the bottom up to register as a Muslim environmentalism. I'm not interested in that at all because in fact, a lot of the terms and the structures and the expectations for what is the environment and certainly what is environmentalism going to look like are messages that circulate through these flows that we were just talking about, Christian, from the global through the national to the local and then right back up again. And the circulations of you know grant proposals and how they're written and funded is one way to track that. At the same time, what I see is that there is a... Um, there's a two-way flow to some degree between the messages of enrolling Islam for the sake of an environmentalist goal on the one hand, and then the ways in which uh, people that I had access to in interviews and discussions see the environment as a mechanism or a means to reach religious goals. So not just in this chapter about development, but throughout the book, um, there's sort of a as a movement that goes first from looking at the kinds of programs that development agencies would promote, which are then naturally, you know, adopted and initiated by Muslims, and then moving to more of the religious discourse and noticing the continuities with the uh, Sufi tradition, which is um, 
sometimes explicitly erased in discourse about Islam and environment, and sometimes explicitly erased too in Muslim-majority settings, even though the patterns remain. So uh, what I found when looking at development in particular was that a lot of expectations revolved around world religions kinds of assumptions. So uh, some agencies would expect there to be outreach to Muslims that would be um, uh, cognate with the sorts of programs that were articulated for other faith communities. An example being um, having uh, programs for farming, for environmentally friendly or sustainable, sustainable farming be cast both for Muslims and for Christians with essentially the same agricultural and environmental practices, land use practices, but then having different introductory matter on the one hand, you know, verses from Quran for Muslims and then Bible for Christians. And so uh, that's what I'm largely looking at. Um, I find also that uh, my own fieldwork in Cambodia really helped me to see, uh, to think about some of the patterns that do propagate developmentalist goals throughout uh, throughout the region and more widely from the reading that I've done about Islam and development. And those tend to be uh, structures that differ from the way that uh, outreach is discussed, at least in religious studies when we talk about development, which often relates to concepts like uh, flourishing, for example. But instead, what I found on the ground is that networks, uh, patronage, and especially the interest in developing institutions, for example, for schooling, are a rich area of overlap between outreach from the outside, say from transnational NGOs, as well as Muslim communities themselves, like those in Cambodia and Indonesia. Um, now, you, you kind of uh, talked a little bit or mentioned this in passing, but um, you, you do have a whole chapter on um, kind of the Quran and Muslim environmentalism. Um, so I was hoping you could talk about the theological resources uh, Muslims put to use for environmental objectives. Uh, for example, what, what Quranic themes or passages do they draw upon? And um, how might contemporary Muslim actors uh, put these to use? Yeah, thanks. I mean, the, the Quran chapter is really as uh, fieldwork driven as possible. So uh, in the Quran chapter, I'm really, I've already established in the book that the, the environment is an ethical concept uh, and looked a little bit about some of the, um, the weaknesses of like the received nature concept, for example, that's often used in, in environmental studies and environmental humanities and then applied in Islam. So it's, it's really the, the chapter starts very openly looking at the phenomenon of what do people actually do. And so one of the, the first things is to notice that the kinds of discourse that circulates around in Islam and environment about Quran tends to focus on standard key verses, standard environmental verses that um, are similar and yet different from the way that Quran and Quranic teachings and hermeneutics are enacted in the ways that I saw it. So, for example, there's sort of standard verses. You can Google them right now about stewardship and balance and notions of nature and sustainability, which are in the Quran and central. And what I also found is that Muslim preachers, when explicitly asked, you know, what is it that you, that you preach and teach from Quran about environment, also focused on other aspects of the text. And so to look with a hermeneutic that isn't attempting to extract particular ayat from the Quran, but instead looks in context as, as one as one would if one knew the text, you know, even at an elementary kind of a level in Indonesia, presents a kind of a different picture. So one of the things in the in the chapter that I focus on is a, a well-known notion of the signs in the Quran and how those indicate a system of accountable relations, which is resonates with themes now in environmental humanities too, like the work of Donna Haraway 
Anna Singh and others. But one of the surprises to me was the degree to which signs not only of uh, environmental landscape change in the past and the present, but signs of imminent change in the future were really informing explicitly environmentalist approaches. So the notion of apocalypticism and the end of the world is something that didn't really appear in the Islam and environment literature that uh, I had to start with uh, as I was crafting this project. And I found it to be absolutely central because it indicates to uh, Muslim environmentalists that I spoke to in Indonesia, at least, the imperative to be engaged in the present for the sake of the ultimate horizon of change in the landscape in worlds to come. And this is different from the way that sometimes eschatology and apocalypticism is discussed in Christian majority North America, because what I saw is that that Quranic teaching was um, had the effect of redoubling environmental commitment, because the equation is made that by expressing and enacting mercy in this world, a religious Muslim might then, based on the Quran, have the hope to receive the mercy of Allah in the world to come. So rather than saying the world is going to end, it doesn't matter. That the world is going to end means that the most effective route to achieving success in the world to come is by caring environmentally for this world. So it's really the shift in the book from the notion of uh, Islam for the sake of the environment to the environment for the sake of Islam. And then this carries through in legal and ethical context in the next next chapter. Um, so how how can Islamic jurisprudence um, and things like ethical social norms um, be shaped towards um, environmental justice? And uh, what you know what are some of the most striking examples you found in your your fieldwork of this kind of uh, connection? Yeah, you know I was trying to map um, key terms and ideas from emerging fields we could call environmental ethics, which is not just philosophical ethics, but um, a number of kinds of approaches, including EJ or environmental justice. I was trying to map that into the examples that I was seeing in Indonesia and elsewhere. For example, um, fatwas that are being issued that with the expectation that somehow the authority of the jurisprudential authority and institutional authority of the agency that issues these fatwa, that, that they're going to change attitudes or change something. So I was thinking, you know, how, how to match up notions about um, rights and value and even the, um, the, the, the ontological expression of what or who has standing in environmental ethics and law and how that matches up. And the reason why is because, um, as you, as won't surprise you, I'm sure the ethical and legal discourses and practices around the environment, both historically and what I was seeing uh, in my work in the field, are so robust and so strong. So um, so the way that the chapter ended up working was by thinking about the, mm, trying to think about the categories that would best fit ways to present an, an Islamic environmental ethics, moving from notions like adab and practical ethics through ritual law, you know, many, um, uh, m- many environmental agencies and outreach to Muslims seek to green the pillars of Islam through ibadat, say through green hajj or green Ramadan. Um, and of course, there's a lot of environmental material like about water uh, in, uh, in the fiqh about uh, law of worship itself. And then other rulings about transactional fiqh about this, with which there's a lot um, about the environment, shared resources and water, and then uh, notions of public reasoning like these fatwas. So uh, instead of th- instead of pulling out of the previous chapter about Quran, a fundamental idea that you know resources are also creatures or mahluk, instead I was looking in this more sort of formal way, like how can we make sense of uh, an Islamic ethics? And what I found was that a lot of the Muslim material actually maps 
really, really well onto the ways that we talk about environmental ethics now in environmental humanities and environmental studies, such as with questions of rights of nature, but then also conserve to decolonize those kinds of ideas because certainly the notion of rights, haq and hukuk, is, uh, is different in an Islamic sense, particularly around resources like water. What I found here too also was that by working with a religious system, the horizons of ultimate accounts, you know, the consequences of relations, transactions, practices uh, in the world with humans being seen as one class of creatures among others, right? Not having this sort of anthro, um, uh, anthropocentric notion, but rather humans as participants, just accountable uh, with respect to the world to come. Having the horizons of those accounts be ultimate judgment in some ways shifted the registers of environmental ethics and Islamic law. So I think, for example, that one of the reasons why secular agencies uh, like NGOs, like WWF, and even the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service has been in the past supportive of efforts to produce fatwas in Indonesia, that these secular agencies wish to promote Islamic law of the environment. The World Bank uh initiated a project that had a lot to do actually with the current term that's used, the Arabic term bia, that's used to define environment in an Islamic sense. That these secular agencies are promoting Islamic law because of expectations around these horizons that somehow a religious law, a law that extends into the world to come in terms of consequences would be more effective or more compelling or more persuasive to religious Muslims than is the uh, the duplicate, in some cases redundant, environmental law that's already on the books um, in the state. You know, Indonesia has pretty good environmental law. So, uh, so by looking at religious law, it's a way to explain how overall, surprisingly among non-Muslims too, people think that Islamic law is going to have an effect that, um, that secular law doesn't, say when it's ignored due to uh, corruption or the same kinds of structures that we see worldwide in terms of environmental disregard. I think that a generalized Marxian attitude um, is no longer sufficient to carry the uh, the ethical and really existential load um, in political ecology and in other fields in environmental studies. I think that current discussions in environmental humanities similar to Islamic law see the dimensions, the scale of discussion be on an existential register of ultimate annihilation of, of really the end of the world. And so, you know, naturally one wouldn't expect contemporary environmental humanities to work in a, in a way that can verify unverifiable truth claims. Yet I do see in the work of Bruno Latour and others, a desire to be in this same scale and register of being able to talk about a no analog present and a no analog future as being the stakes of ultimate, you know, potential catastrophe, such as climate catastrophe. And I also see an indigenous scholarship in environmental humanities, already the notion of apocalypticism being used very productively in terms of critique, for example, with the, uh, with the recognition that for many communities globally, including right here in the United States, the end of the world has already happened. Um, so you, you ex extend these conversations to um, uh, beyond law and ethical questions into um, what you're calling Islamic humanities. Um, so what, what do the various registers of Islamic sciences provide uh, Muslim environmentalism? Um, so how, how are Muslim humanistic traditions, such as uh, aesthetic or scientific dimensions, um, brought into the service of contemporary uh, environmental outreach? Yeah, thanks. The, the, the 
the chapter that brings in material that's really familiar in Islam and the environment, including from literature, and then I, I write a lot about science too, uh, is one that ends up really um, trying to explain how it is that in the present groups, Muslim and non-Muslim, essentially attempt to leverage environmental symbols for, uh, for outreach and education. And that these symbols, as we know in religious studies, right, these symbols are also real. So the ways in which notions like uh, conservation areas like Hema and Harim, known from the time of the Prophet Muhammad, are now recast in contemporary discourses. So to do this, I, um, I decided that it would be fine to put an Islamic humanities in a conversation on the same epistemological level as the humanities, namely the European humanities that owe so much to um, Islamic predecessors, Muslim majority systems in so many ways. And uh, that's supported by thinking about the recent work, What is Islam? by um, Shahab Ahmed and others. And I end up writing then about uh, sciences um, everything from esoteric sciences like alchemy to empirical sciences like uh, chemistry, really the fields that have become environmental sciences today uh, in biological and physical sciences, about how they worked with registers of aesthetics, symbolism, and morality in uh, Arab and Persian, Persian sources from the past, and then how this recurs now in ways to think about the symbolic leveraging of environmental symbols and realities in the present. So uh, yeah. so the chapter in the end really talks a lot about empiricism um, and the ways in which an expectation that there's a extension from the physical world, the seen manifest world into that which is uh, symbolic, metaphorical, is really central to environmentalist work. Like Christian, if you're going to try to communicate to people um, the unseen, the unknown, the indeterminate, like the climate futures that many predict, one needs to have a kind of a symbolic language and a register that will expand ways of thinking from the phenomenal signs in this world of, of changing conditions to the expected world to come. Makes sense, yeah. Um, you, you kind of extend, um, in some ways, uh, some of this context into the, the, the final full chapter, um, where you look at, um, various, uh, contexts that we might think of as Sufism, um, and the, the kind of ethnographic work you did is really fascinating, but, um, you also, we, we kind of encounter a similar dichotomy that you've you've laid out for us earlier in the, in the sense of what we might think of as Sufism in the environment versus a Sufi environmentalism. Um, so I'm wondering if you could uh, first talk a little bit about uh, this kind of academic tradition of using Sufism to think about the environment and then how you saw that incorporated um, locally on the ground um, in a kind of eco-Sufism experiment. Yeah, thanks. Well, the one of the first um, Americans to write in the English language about religion and the environment was, of course, Said Hossein Nasser. And his work, A Man in Nature, appeared at about the same time that a very well-known, influential article, in fact, the most most often cited article from the journal Science, I think still to this day, it's cited in just about every treatment of religion and ecology or religion and environment by Lynn White Jr. came out at about the same time in 1966-67. In and uh, Syed Hossein Nasser, in his later work, in the, in the 50 years that ensued, wrote a great deal about Islam and the environment. And the early work takes notions from his uh, uh, field of masterful expertise, medieval Muslim philosophy and theosophy, and applies it in a in, in, in his typical sort of universalizing voice, divorced of a specific Islamic identity and character as an answer to the problem of environmental crisis or environmental degradation. 
So that really starts a, a, a way of thinking cosmologically about uh, Islam and the environment and the tradition of Islamic studies through Said Hossein Nasser that matches very, very closely with the cosmological expectations in at least American discussions about environmental problems and solutions going back to Emerson, Thoreau, von Humboldt before them. So this cosmological tradition, I think, is what you're picking up on uh, when I talk about a kind of a, a Sufi approach, which, you know, we can call Orientalist in a good way. You know, it's text-based. It doesn't really look much at what uh, Muslims actually do on the ground, you know, which in the case of Nasser has some irony, right? Because he really uh, has done a lot to support advocacy and activism in the Washington, D.C. area with Green Muslims. So that's where it starts. And then it shifts to looking at Indonesia, where um, there I did see a couple of cases where there was a self-conscious attempt to develop eco-Sufism. That's what it was called and used naturally the translated works of American academics to imagine what Sufism is. So, you know, Lewis on Rumi and Chidik on Ibn Arabi and so forth. On the other hand, what I also saw was that the kinds of bases for uh, grassroots activism in Indonesia, for example, in West Java, uh, that were precisely those that, uh, in my reading of the English language literature, had been overlooked in looking at how the environment is enrolled, say, for the sake of Islam, have strong Sufi background in that way that we talk about Sufism and in Islamic studies, right? Not, not formally tasawwuf, but instead a cluster of, of practices of piety, esoteric piety. So I found that um, the tradition of veneration of the Prophet Muhammad, for example, performance even of salawat, uh, peace and prayers being called on the Prophet Muhammad in a kind of a zikr, was then cast as a kind of a communal practice that had extension into um, environmental practice. And throughout, um, what, what I saw just by being in context was that a sort of a, a reality and a moral virtue was emphasized overall, which is something that I also hadn't really seen in the English language literature, for example, about environmental verses, even though it's a key term in the Quran in context repeated many, many more times, say, than a notion of balance. And that is the idea of mercy or rahmah. Um, of a sense of healing and compassion. Many of the hadiths that were related to me by preachers and environmental leaders when they were speaking on an Islamic basis also had this theme as well. And this is, again, the notion predicated on the end of the world, that by practicing compassion and mercy to creatures and creations, human, non-human, sentient, non-sentient, that uh, one could hope to receive the ultimate mercy and compassion in the world to come, in landscapes in this world, and also transform landscapes um, after ultimate destruction. So that was that's really where the book winds up, um, and I and I structured it, Christian, to end with that point, not to essentialize Islamic teachings on the environment into this one notion, but rather because that was what I saw emphasized so strongly, at least in the area in which I worked, in which I really wanted to bring forward as a positive, sort of constructive contribution to environmental ethics. I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about, and this this kind of goes throughout the chapters, um, but mainly in terms of your engagement with uh, folks on the ground, how does all this stuff fit into um, kind of the, the the broader Islamic scene, so to speak, um, in Indonesia or in Southeast Asia more generally? Um, are these things that uh, lots of people are thinking about? Are these things that people from particular interpretive traditions or institutional settings are um, partaking in? Um, you know, I, as an Islamicist, I, I want to know more about kind of where this all fits into the broader picture. Yeah, thanks. I mean, to, I, to answer that question, I would even take a, a cast a broader picture than that, which is that I really don't see 
um, in my academic work or in my life, a lot of difference in terms of the intensity of engagement and the creativity of thinking about environment with uh, communities in Asia, not in Asia, or Muslim faith communities or not. So in many ways, that the answer to your question, I think, is really similar to the ways that we would just talk about uh, environmentalism and re- religious environmentalism overall, including here in the United States of America. Um, and I think that this sort of shared project of thinking about the language that's used to talk about the environment as an ethical concept for Muslims and non-Muslims and all of us as a part of the human community can really move forward now into the 21st century and move beyond a lot of these very 19th century ideas, quite frankly, about nature and crisis and a too casual universalization from you know particular attitudes, say, you know, I'm here in Madison, Wisconsin, two blocks away from the home of Aldo Leopold right now, you know, recognizing that these are part of a plural and global conversation. The other thing that um, was uh, kind of related to this project that I thought uh, would be interesting to hear about is um, you provided a set of uh, videos, um, which you um, online label Green Islam in Indonesia. And um, I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what, what these are all about um, why you wanted to make these uh, available to others and, and open access and these kind of things, um, how you might imagine they might be put to use. I think it's a really great resource. And uh, yeah, I was hoping you could talk about that. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I shot these uh, these short videos. There's about 40 or 50 of them, I think now, from 2011 uh, until just a couple years ago and subtitled them myself. And um, they... Many of them are conversations with preachers and teachers in Southeast Asia about exactly what we've been talking about. So throughout the book, um, I cite the different videos in some cases, which are actual recordings of the conversations that I'm discussing and citing in the book. So if folks would like to go right to the source, you know, not hear it, my explanation, but just, you know, listen to people talking directly um, they can go right to the videos. Yeah, I did that because I really thought that, um, especially because many of the uh, the people who are speaking in the videos already are professional educators and preachers and teachers of various kinds. That you know they were um, that they were the best people to articulate firsthand what they had to say. And you know because many of these people are already in the public eye, there was no difficulty um, getting their explicit permission to record. So I found that this material was really helpful in my own teaching about uh, Islam and the environment. It was actually one reason why I shot them initially. I was thinking about friends like you, Christian, and, you know, in the, in the American Academy of Religion section from the study of Islam, wouldn't it be great, you know, to have a four minute video to show with someone talking about how Quran and Hadith you know, informs their work in an eco-madrasa, and especially knowing that the kiai or the shaykh of that madrasa was very happy <laughs> to appear on camera, you know, and to talk to your students. So that, that's what they are. The, um, the website is uh, vimeo.com, hijau, H-I-J-A-U, it means green in Indonesia. And mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're still up there. Uh, the teaching that I found to be one of the the deepest and the most productive in terms of a eco-theological analysis um, is actually on there in a four-part interview, um, as is uh, another extended interview that is uh, that I put into shorter segments, which is actually in English about practices of Islamic uh, permaculture and sustainability. Yeah, I think they're a great resource, and uh, I hope I hope people will uh, incorporate them in classes and things like that. Because, uh, I mean, I think it's a great practice too. I mean, I realize not everyone can record their their field work and conversations, but uh, it seems like something that would be really valuable for for others. Yeah, you know, we'll, yeah, it's, we'll see. You know, and I was just in an opportunity where I was fortunate to have that access. It's also kind of a um, 
what it's a it's an invitation it's an aspiration too that um other colleagues will have more of an interest in this area too you know the 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 conclusion to the book is really a reflection not just on the construction and criticism um that uh, a critique that comes out of this analysis of muslim environmentalisms but it's also uh by thinking about what is local, what is global, what is universal about these Muslim environmentalisms, uh, I hope that it'll inspire others to do their own field work in their own regions of the world and begin to build up a literature and a conversation around this critical topic. Yeah, that's great. I hope so, too. Anna, before um, I let you go, um, I'm sure people would love to hear about the uh, wonderful things you're, you're working on now. Uh, well, it's new. Um, not so wonderful yet. One, <laughs> one uh, I am thinking about how to cast uh, proposals and permissions for a project which is really grounded in environmental studies, but uses the structures and mechanisms and experience of working in Islam in Indonesia to look at uh, Jakarta as the world's fastest sinking city. Uh, which it is due to groundwater extraction, the sheer weight of the city exacerbated by effects of upslope land use and uh, sea level rise too. So uh, that would look, um, assuming that it falls into place, look at mosque communities at different places around the city. And then the other project is the one that I'm super excited about. Uh, even though field work is where my heart is, uh, my head is really in a book right now about environmental ethics that would depart from one of the key assertions of this book we've been talking about, that the environment is an ethical idea, and try to um, create uh, an approach that would really fit the way that we teach and think in environmental studies, which is truly interdisciplinary, right? From physical sciences to biological sciences to uh, social sciences and humanities uh, fit what we actually do and to move away from the more limited approaches of uh, philosophical ethics for reasons that may or may not be obvious. And then also a kind of emerging um, phenomenology, which is, which is good, but tends to be sort of naive in its presentation of environmental things without an overarching kind of theorization that's robust. So uh, I really want to think through that and think through maybe um, developments in medical ethics and how that could inform how we think about management and praxis in a field of religious ethics about the environment. Well, it sounds like uh, lots of work to do, so good luck. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk about this wonderful book. Thanks so much. That was my conversation with Anna Gade about Muslim Environmentalisms, Religious and Social Foundations, published with Columbia University Press in 2019. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. We hope you'll join us again.